0: Now, when you say faculty development, though, to me, that's still podcast for the learner. It might not be a student learner, but the faculty as a whole, they are the learners and they are students. So. Yeah, yeah, the absolutely. teacher is now the learner. And they should be. That's a huge part of education is that teaching is always learning.
1: You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching.
2: As we dive into the first few months of 2018, it is a great time to explore and reflect on emerging issues and trends in higher education. Around this time, many institutions publish annual reports, survey results, or announcements of new initiatives. So in today's episode, we are going to touch on some of the hot topics of the day and conversationally consider their implications. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the academic innovation team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Kachaitiwa,
1: Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford.
2: All right, to get us started, I'd like to chat about the recently released list of 2018 Key Issues in Teaching and Learning, published by the Educause Learning Initiative, or ELI. They have been surveying the higher education community and producing these reports since 2011. This year, ELI has identified 15 key issues. To keep us from going down a rabbit hole and spending an entire episode on this one report, let's focus on the top five. Number one, academic transformation. Number two, accessibility and universal design. Number three, faculty development. Number four, privacy and security. And number five, digital and information literacies. It's also interesting to note that four out of five of these issues were also ranked in the top five from 2017, although in a different respective order. The one item that changed from last year was a swap from competency based education and assessment of student learning. Two, privacy and security. So, who wants to go first and share their reactions to the importance and relevance of these issues to your everyday life as an instructional designer?
3: Well, number five caught my attention, the digital and information literacies. According to the definition, it's identifying and developing new student competencies and finding, evaluating, creating, and managing digital information in the 21st century. And the first word that came to my mind, our first phrase was fake news. I'm we, so
1: glad you said that.
3: We live in the era of fake news and then... Just being a student requires knowing how to access the information that your libraries provide. I think this is a big deal, you know, to, to be literate and finding valid information.
0: I would agree, especially in looking for library resources. We're in a digital age where the students just have to go in and type in a keyword, or they can just Google it. We're constantly Googling everything. But I, I think that that old school library literacy needs to come back so they know how to better research. Wait, is this
3: one of those things that's better than, you're remembering it better than it actually was? Was there ever a time when we had?
0: The Dewey Decimal System is amazing.
1: Thank you very much. I I won't go far as far back there as Celia just went. But I I will hit the Wayback Machine and set it for 10 years. And I remember talking to librarians, they were very, very concerned about the rise of Google. And back then Yahoo was still a player and students just going out there and getting stuff and writing their research papers on that. And librarians were very concerned that they were being bypassed because it meant the journals that should be used in research papers weren't being used. And and I think we call that more or less critical thinking back then we was like, oh, students need to be able to critically think about the resources they're looking at. And we kind of lumped it in with that. And obviously, the the what's happened over the past year and a half, two years has really brought this to the forefront and has bubbled it into the top five. And so, I think that's something that's very critical that has always been there, but it's now being named what it's being named as this needs to happen.
2: Yeah, the rise of Wikipedia, anyone? The dual challenge of not only being able to evaluate information, but also to suddenly be able to be
1: a producer of information? And, and the problem is Wikipedia, you know, has more articles than Encyclopedia Britannica, and, and is actually more accurate, despite the fact that Britannica, the Encyclopedia was written by experts. It was more up to date to use Wikipedia. But at the same time, it was easy for people to change and make it false and take longer to find those falsehoods if somebody wasn't looking for them.
3: Life pro tip, don't take directly from Wikipedia, but look at the sources cited at the bottom and follow that rabbit hole instead.
1: Very practical. Yeah, that was always my approach. I think that's a great point, Eric. Uh, I'm not the only one to know that. (laughs) No, I I did that too. It was great.
0: I don't think you did that like a couple of weeks ago when you uh, cited Wikipedia. Are we going to
3: do this now? We're going to do this now? (laughs) yeah i cite wikipedia (laughs) when uh when it suits my needs so
1: (laughs) you know but to be fair sometimes wikipedia has some of the best definitions out there i mean i look in the dictionary at different things and it's and the definition is either hasn't caught up yet to what it is yeah they're there but that's just it i have a discerning eye that i've developed over the years what do our students have do they have that experience and that is something we need to help our students gain
2: crowdsourcing information. What about that leap of privacy and security into the top five? What do you have to say about that?
1: Oh, I am big on this. This is one that I think is a very important one. And it's one that I think faculty should be more aware of than they are. We think about Oh, well, the LMS, that is the institution's problem. They're the ones who's going to secure that. They're the ones who's going to protect that data. We think about turn it in for those schools who use that as a plagiarism checker. We are basically giving our students papers away to turn it in to do whatever they want. And our students have no say over what they want with their writing. But let's take it one more level. And this is one area that faculty need to be aware of. If they are asking their students to use tools like a wiki tool or a blogging tool where they're, or YouTube, and they're creating things that are sitting in the public. We are exposing our student's name and they're putting things out there in that name. And if you're asking them to take a controversial position, they're now building a digital identity around that controversial position that they may not believe in. And someone may Google that, find it and think, oh, you believe in X when in reality they they were just learning or they were debating a point. So I think it's very important for faculty when they are using tools that are not institutionally supported to think about what does that mean for our students? How do our students use that tool and protect themselves? Do they use pseudonyms? What, what, what do we do?
2: Absolutely, student privacy is such an important issue. Another issue i read about was this concern where you might have pilot agreements with certain vendors and Most of the time they're looking at student data in an aggregate form, but unless you have a really solid foundation for how that's evaluated, you're at risk in some cases of sharing things like student grades, and we would not want that to necessarily be identifiable with a vendor we don't have a relationship
1: with. Yeah, and that's a good point. And, you know, with the rise of MOOCs, what was interesting was there was a study done a couple of years ago, and essentially the researchers were given anonymized information and they were able to figure out who the students were, where they lived and and, and, and everything else based off of the data that was anonymized. So you can get a lot of this information back. And also, when you're using tools that aren't institutionally supported, when the institution negotiates a contract, they're supposed to negotiate the protection of the data. When you're using YouTube, that's marketing data that Google gets to use. So you have to be very careful about how that's being done.
2: There's so many connectors. Let's focus on the accessibility topic for a minute. One of the things that makes this a particularly interesting hot topic for 2018 is that revised Section 508 rules went into effect on January 18th of this year. Section 508 refers to the laws and standards that require the federal government to make electronic and information technology accessible to people with disabilities. This law impacts universities and colleges because many receive some form of federal funding, or operate programs that adhere to federal standards for a variety of reasons. Another thing I'd like to note here is that when I attended the Online Learning Consortium's Accelerate Conference last November, accessibility as a whole was most certainly a very hot and very visible focal area. Much of the discussion circled around not only the legal requirements for addressing accessibility, but also the broader ethical and practical imperatives for ensuring materials are as usable as possible for all stakeholders. Accessibility can be a scary issue for faculty because a lot of times we hear about it, on the news when things go wrong and there are lawsuits
3: involved. What do
2: you think about this as a hot topic for 2018?
3: It's always a hot topic, really. Good answer. (laughs) It's tricky. I know when I'm doing course builds here, I don't get an extra note saying, oh, make sure that we make this accessible. And there's certain areas where you can do that. If I'm uploading an image to the course through uh, the LMS, there's an option to put alternate tags on it, for example. And, you know, I don't do that. I guess, you know, slap my hand. But I'm not sure that anybody's doing that necessarily. Please correct me if I'm wrong.
1: I think sometimes we do it and sometimes we don't.
0: Yeah, I would say that that's probably the one piece that I don't always do is that the images and tagging them i try to check for other things Videos. I know that one program is trying to go through all of their videos and make sure that they have, you know, closed captioning on them. But it's a it's a tricky project. I mean, it's a right. huge project to go back through and make sure that everything that you're using has closed captioning, especially right. if you weren't the one who created it. If you're, you know, pulling from, let's say, a YouTube video, kind of don't know. Sometimes. And that your PDFs
3: and aren't just images, but rather you have searchable text, for example, yes. and that all the videos are a certain resolution. There's a lot to go through, but you're saying that a program as a whole is looking to upgrade yes. the courses to become accessible, right? So to me, it it can't just be the designer alone. It has to be a group effort because it's it's a large undertaking.
1: And you know, and to be fair, with us working in nursing, a lot of these requirements haven't been a problem for us because of the fact that most of our students, if they have a a, vis, uh, a vision issue or a hearing issue, that may preclude them from participating in the profession. How However, things have changed so much in the last couple of years. That's not the case anymore. And so this is something that we definitely need to pay a lot more attention to and become a lot more consistent with.
0: But that just touches on nursing. I mean, when we're looking at like healthcare related courses Especially that don't programs, have you know, yeah. nursing specialties, those are the programs that are still, you know, needing to make sure that everything is accessible because they, they don't have those same restrictions or... I, I do
1: know of at least one deaf student in one of our online courses a couple of years ago, and they didn't declare until halfway through their program. And so, you know, and, and that was back in the days where nothing was closed captioned unless it had to be. And so obviously that triggered things to be closed captioned. But like I said, that's becoming less and less of a luxury for us. It's now becoming necessity. We have to do this.
2: Much of the focus on the legal liability is in your outward facing websites, and that often that kind of... Of content generation and quality controls handled in a different way at large institutions than your instructional materials. And it's also worth pointing out that there's not an accommodation and an accessible website are not the same thing. Accommodations are reasonable changes to certain types of material based on user needs, not a general legal standard.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I want to tack on one of the things Aaron said about PDFs, they need to be searchable. And one of the ways I always check is, can I select some of the text within the PDF, and if I can't, then it's not usually searchable. And so that's how you know that's one of the ways that's where I you know. can check. For yeah, that. but when creating one, the best thing to do is in Word do save as PDF. Mm-hmm. If you do print as PDF, it becomes more image like, but if you do save as, it, it's actually usually searchable.
3: It's probably a topic for another episode, but if you have a document, a PDF that's not searchable or you don't know, or I guess you could use uh, Steven's method to check, but if you need it to to be or to have searchable text, who does that for you?
1: Well, if you've got a copy of Adobe Acrobat, and I don't mean the reader, but the full version of Acrobat, you can run it through what's called an optical character recognition. And then you have to manually correct everything Mm. if it's wrong. And And I used to have students who did that 15 years ago, and that was a lot of work.
0: I think that's a huge question, too, is whose job is it to make sure all of this is done? You know, what um, does it come back to the ID team? Is it the responsibility of the instructor to go back through their course to check this? Is it a program director who's, you know, checking courses? I mean, whose job is it?
3: I think it has to be a group effort.
0: And different institutions approach that differently. Some of them
2: actually have people that's literally their job, and they use very regimented checklists and procedures. So it it can vary quite a bit. It's a big issue. One other key issue on this year's report that I'd like to briefly touch on, and of course, one that is near and dear to our hearts... Number seven on the list is instructional design. Generally, this reflects the evolving roles and visibility levels of IDs, but in particular, let's chat about something that has certainly garnered a lot of buzz recently, the National Study on Research Engagement and Preparation of IDs in Higher Education out of Oregon State. What do you think about IDs as researchers or research
0: partners? To stay up with the information that's out there in the world of education, higher education, faculty development, I think it's extremely important for instructional designers to have some sort of foot in the research door.
3: Well, if you're trying to make a data-driven decision about your course design, then it's absolutely essential to have some research component to back up your actions. So yeah, I would, I, I'm totally in favor of it, but if I had a rant card, I'd play it. My program didn't teach me, and I'm, I, I realize that sounds like i uh, I'm not trying to play victim here necessarily, but I, I never learned how to do proper research, other, except for my own essays and papers, right? So.
2: That's a big component of the report, yeah. is exactly to tease out where should that be, and, and how prepared are instructional designers in their formalized programs of study? Where do they learn this stuff, or, or do they not learn this stuff?
0: And the study does say that 16.8% have said that that is one specific barrier, that they do not have the specific training or experience to be able to complete a research. So it's not just me, then? No, it's not just you. <laughs> You're part of that 16.
1: I, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to be in a program that valued the research. And so we were taught the evidence-based approach. We were taught that you know instructional design should be about evidence, not about tradition. So I learned some of it. I also had the advantage of starting a PhD, so I learned more research bits than a lot of my colleagues had. And then I did eventually go and complete an EDD, and and that was an action research-focused degree. And I, and I tell you, I really liked the action research approach, and this is something I advocate for all instructional designers, is partner with faculty. If you have a pro, you know, to solve a problem in the teaching and learning process, what does the evidence say? Where did it work? It may have worked in your context, it may not, but if it, especially if it did not, then this is an opportunity to go, hey, this is something, and when I say did not, I mean, it hasn't been applied there yet. This is an opportunity to try something and and then write about it and communicate, hey, this works in this context as well. Or it worked partially in this context and then we made these adjustments and now it works better in this context with these adjustments. Get that word out and publish it. I think a lot of instructional designers now have gotten used to presenting at conferences and that's that's a very good thing. It's time to take the next step and start publishing.
2: It's a good point that there are different avenues for dissemination, but, you know, There's a lot
1: of room to grow as well. And I think one of the problems for instructional designers is a lot of the journals are focused on theoretical instructional design when we see instructional design articles, and we need to find the journals that are on applied instructional design on the practical approach. And that is something that we need more of, and I think will help our field grow and then hopefully help those in the theoretical areas pull pieces together and do more.
0: I also think that, you know, with instructional design being such a huge melting pot of a lot of different experiences and what they actually do in their workplace, whether it's, you know, a private business, um, higher education, I think that also, you know, makes a difference in the research approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you do in corporate is probably going to be a white paper on the product and you don't want to do too much because you don't want to give away the secret sauce of your corporate approach.
0: I think it also, you know, changes up the different experiences that the instructional designers are coming in with. Like Aaron said, you know, in his education, he didn't gain that research experience.
3: It was a great program, by the way, but I did not get that <laughs> component. Yeah.
0: But from, you know, myself who comes from an education background from post back to master's, I did have some of that experience with research. So, you know, it all depends on where yeah. your prior knowledge is coming from. I think one
2: of the biggest practical barriers for me in, in thinking about this is what it means to be an instructional designer as a staff member. There's not necessarily in every institution an understanding that that's the role or or scope of a staff person's work. And even if they are in an environment that supports that kind of engagement, they may not have the time or the bandwidth. It's not a deliverable that they're held accountable to.
1: It's a funny comment you make there because at some institutions you'll see instructional designers carry the academic staff title which essentially gives them the same footing as a librarian which has academic protections and 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 a publication expectation in many cases to do research whereas other institutions yeah they're just pure staff much like your desktop support person or your uh department admin assistant how how about that for a nice difference in approaches (laughs)
3: It just goes to show there's so many flavors of ID work out there. But I'm curious, is this going to be a thing? Is, is uh, an instructional designer who knows how to do research going to be necessary in the field in the future? Because if so, I would love to get that professional development. in.
0: Well, I mean, one of the con- the conclusion to this report talked about how Oregon has decided that they are going to hire one specific person, one specific ID, to be a fellow for their research.
3: So Oregon has one. Yes.
1: Yeah, so we know of one. <laughs> In <laughs> the differentiate, that's Oregon State. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, but shit. I will also say that Penn State has at least one as well. I know that they have an instructional designer who is pretty much a researcher, not a course developer. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, they talk about this in QM quite a bit in the, the fellowship network, right?
1: Yeah, that's because that's the person who's president of that group is the one I'm thinking of.
0: Yeah, when I saw the the barrier, the number one barrier being time, the first thing I thought about was, you know, how many of these instructional designers are coming from places where they're almost basically course factories, you know, just trying to get courses out and pushed out. And I could definitely see them having difficulty with time. But when I think about a team like the one that we have, I could see us having the ability to use some of our time to do more research based approaches.
3: Sure. Well, I've worked in three different locations as an instructional designer and every institution had a different perception about what my job is and what my purview is. Right. So everything from glorified tech, just fixing problems in the LMS, you know, all the way to, no, we, we want you to help with the professional development and you know, getting a lot more, uh, getting my hands dirty, you know, with the, uh, what's going on in, with the, uh, the instructors. Right. So, I mean, it, you have to have that validity given to you, I think, from the on- outset before you can even go that far into in, in contributing research.
1: You know, and I'll echo that sentiment. My career has been spent in some very forward thinking organizations. And I've spent a majority of my career going, why are you not telling your story better? Why are you not telling people what you're doing? Because what you're doing is impressive. And part of that is my fault as a member of that organization, because at the time, I either didn't have the skills and knowledge or it wasn't considered important. And, and I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate here at ASU to have had a number of partners. My first refereed journal paper was in conjunction with a faculty member and a librarian talking about one of our instructional design practices that we were implementing in a course. It was very novel at the time. It wasn't that big of a deal to me because I was like, oh, this is just what we do. But it was very novel in the librarian's field. And so she's like, we're going to publish on this. And, and we did. And I think that is something that, you know, as faculty are looking to publish more more, we can be a good partner and contribute. Again, if we move more to the evidence base, that means we should be reading the research that's out there already. And it makes us more knowledgeable of where the gaps are. So we know where to write and we can tell our story better because we're doing some impressive work, not just those of us in the room, but instructional designers all across the globe.
3: It's the next frontier for IDs. Uh, this is Ricardo Leon. I'm the uh, producer here on IBD. Uh, I have a, a question that kind of maybe is a little bit relevant. What do you guys think about the work that you guys are doing here in this room right now in, uh, in reference to this research work? That was, that was, I was subtly referencing this as being the opposite of being seen as purely a glorified IT, by the way. so.
1: <laughs> well, Jeanette's not going to answer that question. Um, that is exactly the agenda we're building right now. You know, we've built a year's worth of episodes. We kind of have an experience under our belt. I think we can now write very honestly about the process and how to go about it. And And I think you're going to see some things come out of this group on that. So we're going to practice what we preach, darn it.
0: <laughs> Prior to attending the Learning Innovation Showcase that ASU had last week, where we took our podcast and we, we talked about how we built our, our podcast and the phases that we went through and what, what's in our next phase. The conversations that we had and the interest level that we gained from the conversations, I think, put us in a great position to be able to write some of that, some papers or, you know, do more research on this. Prior to that, I mean, honestly, for myself, I wasn't sure that we were ready. But after seeing the interest level with the people that we talked to, I think we definitely are in a in a great position.
1: I think it's the value of a poster session or presenting at a conference because you can kind of gauge what, what is the enthusiasm around the topic. And, and I think you just exemplified that perfectly on where we're at and how valuable of an experience that can be. Podcasts are making a comeback.
0: Yeah. The group of people that we talked to differed from, you know, faculty who wanted to learn more and listen to our podcast to faculty who are wondering or, you know, other uh, staff or other members of the university who were just wondering how they can get started. So, you know, the the range of audience and all the ideas they had about
3: how we could improve our podcast as well. A lot of opinions on that. So people are. But I think that speaks to the vested interest in it. It's Mm -hmm. it's real.
0: It's a form of
2: formative assessment, isn't it?
3: Is it?
0: <laughs> From someone who came with a critical eye into this podcast. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's too good, Jeanette. Yeah, you're right. But, you know,
1: Jeanette, you, you did some looking at the evidence on this topic. And, and, and again, I think this podcast is another dissemination. I mean, we talk about research and publishing, but this is a form of publishing as well. But you did a, you did some research on this topic of where how much has been done on this
2: Right. In the, in the uh, educational literature, most of the existing research focuses on using podcasts for learners as a form of content or material the the gap that we're, we're you know thinking about and looking at here is what does it mean to use the podcast in a different way as a faculty development mechanism as a community outreach mechanism there's such a, a range of possibility here to explore the application and what the outcomes are
0: now when you say faculty development though to me that's still podcast for the learner it might not be a student learner but the faculty as a whole they are the learners Good and they are students, yeah so. i meant i meant yeah. students in that case so thank you for clarifying that yeah, absolutely. The teacher is now the learner. And they should be. That's a huge part of education is that teaching is always learning. Good point. It's the point. cycle of life. <laughs> don't get me started on that one.
1: <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny because that ties into number nine on the uh, Educause list as well, the evaluation of tech-based instructional innovations. And while I don't want to launch another... You know, uh, talking to another bubble of that, it, there, I do see a tie in between seven and nine with what we're doing.
0: Also, have to go back to three with faculty development. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge one, and that's something I am constantly
1: looking into. And just for fun, we'll hit number 10 because it's open <laughs> education, too.
0: Great. Let's just talk about and all the And then 15. you have <laughs> <laughs>
1: Don't talk about our work specifically. (laughs)
2: Well, I would definitely recommend that our audience check out the whole list of key issues. There's a lot of interesting information in there and definitely check out the the study out of Oregon State. Quick shout out, the lead author Katie Linder recently was a special guest on the Teaching Online podcast. So that link is also in the show
1: notes. So check that out. And you got to listen to Katie's podcast, uh, Research in Action, and you've got this.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, gang, thanks for exploring the hot topics of the day and sharing your insights and reactions. As we wrap up, I'd like to invite you, our audience, to check out the information and resources included in the show notes and to share your thoughts on these hot topics by connecting with us on Twitter or by email. Thank you for joining me, Celia, Aaron, and Stephen to ponder all the buzzy stuff that fills up our inboxes and Twitter feeds. As always, we have undying appreciation for our producer, Ricardo Leon, who is basically a hot topic unto himself. Hot topic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as in Instruction by Design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at ASU.EDU. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash I-B-D underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.
2: Okay, ready? Let's do this. Time's ticking.
3: Just make this short. One, two, three, five minutes. Okay.
2: Okay. All right. (laughs) are you guys done (laughs) (laughs) who invited this guy